Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Uh, it is really, honestly, sincerely my honor to be with you guys today, uh, and I'm thankful for you. If I didn't get around to your table to shake your hand yet, hopefully I will uh, before the day's over. Uh, just to say thank you. Thank you for serving in the church and for leading in the church. And when it comes to leadership and service in the church, we usually celebrate service. Uh, most of the time, we, we stand and we thank those of you who serve, and we use that word serve in a variety of capacities. And of course, even leadership is servanthood in Christ's church. So the right kind of leadership is servant leadership, and all that's good. Uh, but today, we're going we're gonna to push the word and the concept of servitude to the side and move into leadership specifically how you lead here's the thing uh, everybody in the church should be serving everybody should be serving uh, in one capacity or another whether they have a title or a position or not everybody should be serving Christ's church according to their giftedness but there are some who are called to a different level of service and that level of service is leadership you're called to lead so I'm assuming that you're here today because you're a leader in some capacity and my favorite leadership quote ever is from Peter Drucker who said the only definition of a leader is someone who has followers so if you're thinking where do I fit in this you know uh, if you're thinking I don't really have a position or a title uh, all you have to do to determine whether or not you're a leader is look behind you and if someone is following you then you're leading. Does that make sense? And we'll get into a lot of this. Now, here's my disclaimer today. You are totally guinea pigs. I have never taught what I'm going to teach today. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It could be a complete bust. If it is, then you blame Pastor Matt. It's totally his fault for bringing me in. Uh, but, but I'm excited to completely use you as guinea pigs today and walk you through what I think is a really important topic in leadership or series of topics in leadership. And we are going to use Nehemiah as an example for this. So if you have uh, a copy of the word, then uh, please just go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to walk through chapter 1. Uh, but here's, here's my other disclaimer. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an expositional preacher, and tomorrow morning is the space for that. I'm going to preach tomorrow morning expositionally. Today, this is not going to be expositional sermons. Uh, we're going to use Nehemiah as an example. We're going to use him as a prototype. And I want to pull out some things in his life, and then I'm going to make them very applicable to yours, uh, just from chapter 1. So if what you're hoping for this morning is expositional preaching, I apologize in advance. That's not where we're going this morning. Instead, uh, we're going to hone down. What I really want to do is make this intensely practical. Uh, my goal is that by the end of this session today, this leadership seminar slash workshop, uh, that you walk away with one or two very specific practical things that you can do in your area of leadership starting tonight or tomorrow. And then hopefully you'll have a little bit of a roadmap and a target to aim at down the road. So it's going to be much more like a workshop than a seminar. You have some notes there from me. 
You don't have to use that page. You can use something else. But I'm going to invite you to take notes. We're going to pause uh, sporadically throughout each session. And I'm going to ask you to write down some things. You know, write down three things. Write down two things. Write down one thing. And I want you to participate in that. Uh, it may seem pointless at first. But we're starting big. And we're going to narrow down. All right, so I want you to participate when I ask you to write something down, and I'll pause and let you do that. If you need help from the people at your table, that's just fine, too. Uh, you can do it collaboratively, or you can do it by yourself. Either way, that's the format of today. I see that there are several breaks outlined, and that's beneficial. Our first one is at 10 o'clock. Go ahead and start counting down. You ready? Here we go. Session one is about passion. Uh, what we want to do when we start starting out this leadership discussion, this workshop today, is to focus your passion. Focus my passion. Say those three words with me out loud. Ready, set, go. Focus my passion. That's what we're looking for right now is focusing passion. You'll see this on the screen. Passion is fueled and it is focused in the context of meaningful relationships. And we're going to jump into Nehemiah to, to see this, but I just want you to wrap your head around what we're talking about. Passion, your passion, the way God's wired you, what wakes you up in the morning, those kinds of things are fueled that means you know you you light a fire and it's also focused you need to be passionate about a lot of things but to focus your passion is what we're looking at and that always happens in the context of meaningful relationships so we're taking Nehemiah as a study guide here's the background this is for you history nerds out there like me the rest of you take a nap for like three seconds you ready uh, the, Babylon the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So they come in, they lay waste to Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, 586 B.C. 47 years later, Babylon, the, the ones who conquered Jerusalem and the Jews, Babylon fell to Persia. So Babylon took over Jerusalem. And then they dispersed all the leaders. That was their way of taking control. They took the Nehemiahs and the Daniels and the others, and they dispersed them throughout their land in Babylonia. But then only 47 years later, the Persians come in and they conquer the Babylonians, which is a little weird. There's a, there's a lot of leadership transition going on here. But it only took three years for uh, the Persians to allow the dispersed Jews to go back to Jerusalem. So three years later, Zerubbabel leads the first wave of Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem and then a little while later uh, the temple is rebuilt in 516 so here we are in Jerusalem the temple is rebuilt from the first wave of returning exiles then Ezra leads the second wave of returning exiles 455 BC by the way the whole seminar is not going to be like this it's just groundwork and then Nehemiah who we're looking at he led the third wave, the third wave of returning exile. So what we're looking at in Nehemiah is the third wave of return. Some things have been done in Jerusalem. The temple has been reconstructed. There's some exiles from around the ancient Near East who've come back because Persia has allowed them. And now here we are 141 years after Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Nehemiah's leading exiles back to Jerusalem. 141 years. So Here's how, how, how old is First Baptist Dumas? Anybody know how many years First Baptist Dumas has been in existence? 1,421, what would you say? 28? Oh, 128 years. That's incredible. That's a really, really long time. Uh, so here's why this is applicable. Nehemiah is leading a group of exiles to return to Jerusalem 141 years after the biggest disaster they had ever known. So all of their problems are generations deep. Can I just say it again? All of their problems, everything we're looking at in Nehemiah, all of their problems are generations deep. 
Now, I don't want you to answer this out loud, but some of you I asked around, and I heard this person's been at uh, First Baptist Dumas for 45 years, and this person's been at First Baptist Dumas all of their life, and so on and so forth. So you've, you've walked through a lot of things here at First Baptist Dumas, and I would assume, again, don't say anything out loud, but I would assume that if you really thought about it, you could pinpoint a couple of problems slash opportunities that are generations deep at First Baptist Dumas. Would you agree or disagree? That's probably true. That doesn't mean all of your problems here are generations deep, but some of them are. So I just wanted, I just wanted to wrap our heads around that context while we entered into Nehemiah's leadership space, Nehemiah's leadership opportunity here. So here we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, so he's in uh, the capital city of Persia at that time, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so here's your first exercise. Let's workshop this thing. I want to know what makes you passionate. Now, I'm not going to ask you to share this with me. I'm not even going to ask for volunteers. I just want to know what your passions are. Keep in mind, we're talking about the context of the church. You are leaders in various areas throughout the community. You're leaders in the agricultural realm. You're a leader at school. You're a leader in your business. Uh, you're, you're a leader in all these different areas. But the context we're talking about, which I believe is the highest uh, calling on your life, is the context of the redeemed through the work of the local church. So the space, the leadership space, where you get to add the most value right now and for all eternity is not at school. And it's not even out at work. It's right here in this space as God has invited you to lead his people in this season of Great Commission Advance. So here's what I want to know. I just want you to write down, jot down somewhere. What is it when you're driving to your leadership space at First Dumas? You're in children's ministry, you're in youth ministry, you're in the worship ministry, you're a deacon, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're on a committee, whatever it is. You're driving to, right? And you're getting mentally prepared for your leadership moment. What is it that gets you most excited? What is it that gets you most excited? What are you looking forward to when you're driving toward your leadership space? It could be the name of a person. It could be uh, a certain work that you're doing, an opportunity. It could be a problem you're trying to solve, uh, anything at all. Again, you're not going to share it out loud. I'll give you just a few seconds to think about it. I want you to write down what, what gets you most excited when you're waking up and coming to this space. You write two or three things if you want. Go write down what aggravates you most. That's a different seminar. That's next weekend. <laughs> All right, good. Now, that's going to be important because that's what fuels your passion. These things fuel your passion. We're going to talk about focusing. All right, so Nehemiah, we just read this. Nehemiah is, he's interested in all things Jewish. All things Israel. But Nehemiah, if you walk through verses 1 through 3, he's focusing his passion toward an opportunity. Look at this. So he goes from Jewish brothers. He's, he's asking about all of his Jewish brothers. And then he narrows it a little bit to Judah. You see that in verse 2. And then he narrows it a little bit to survivors of the exile. It's not all Judites. It's, he's asking about the survivors of the exile. And then we get into verse 3. He's most specifically concerned about Jerusalem's wall. So he goes from this really broad passion. He's passionate about all things Israel. 
and then he narrows it down to Judah, you know, Judah, Israel, Judah, and then he narrows it down to not just the Judites, but the ones who've returned from the exile. And then even in that space, he finds a tighter circle, specifically the walls, the walls of Jerusalem. And it's important, I mean, especially in the ancient Near East, for a city to have a fortified wall. Because you have all these people living in there, and if you continue to read uh, Nehemiah, you see a couple of antagonizers who come in, and they want to destroy the work and stop the work. It's important for the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, to have a fortified wall. And so that's Nehemiah's focused passion. And he focused and fueled that passion in the context of meaningful relationship. Hannah and I came, and certain brothers from Judah. So they came and they helped him focus down his passion, what leads him to an opportunity. Let me ask you this. What's your story? I mean, you get through Nehemiah, just these first three verses. He's been there for 20, he's been there for 20 years. His people have been exiled for 141 years. And, and that's all part of his story. All of that has brought him to this passion moment where he's, remember, we're starting really big in session one. By the time we get to session four, we're going to be really, really narrow. So we're still really big. And, and this meaningful relationship of his people, his brothers, his opportunity as he's narrowed down his passion, all of that is fueled in the context of his people, which comes to him through his story. What's your story? Who are your people? What's your moment? And that's what we're going to work towards. So I want to read you this quote. There are several books uh, that, you know, that are not the Bible, I know, um, but that I'm going to quote from today, and a couple of them I brought with me in case you're interested. You'll see these, like this one, Creative for Community. For some reason, I did not bring with me, <laughs> but it's a great book. It's an old one, but a couple of other ones I have right here. So while we're on break, if you wanted to look through them, you certainly can. And These are right here. Okay. But here's uh, a quote from Stanley Grins. This is an old book, but a really good concept. Listen to this. Our personal stories are never isolated units. They are touched by the stories of other persons and ultimately the story of a larger people of which we are a part. In conversion, now we're talking about in salvation, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, which I'm assuming at this point as a leader in this church, in conversion... We reinterpret our personal story in light of the story of the Christian community. Think about that. When you were saved, when you got saved, you reinterpret everything about your story to bring it into the context of the Christian community. Then he says, reinterpreting our story in this matter entails accepting the story of the Christian community as our own. We're now part of this people. We are incorporated into this community. And I know I, uh, I served as a worship pastor in the big city of Littlefield, USA, uh, for three years, about 15 years ago. And I know, I, I know how you people are, uh, us people, in our relatively small towns, especially in West Texas. And we say community, we're talking about our town, we're talking about our people. And I get that. And we're for our community, we're for our city and for our people. But what Stanley Grenz is saying here is that even inside your town, uh, as a Christian, your primary calling is not to make your town a better place. Your primary calling is to use the giftedness that God has entrusted to you to steward to make the Christian community a better place, to advance the gospel in the context of your local gospel outpost, your local church, and to work with sister churches and fellow Christians across the globe in order to advance the Great Commission in this generation. So here's what Stanley's inviting you to do, and this is what I'm going to invite you to do, to reinterpret your story. You may have thought this way your whole life, right? These are my people, the people of Dumas. Okay, I'm challenging you to stop thinking that way right now. I'm challenging you to think, okay, that's not necessarily bad, but I want you to narrow down. 
okay? It's not just Judah, it's the exiles. I want you to think it's not just Dumas, it's these people right here. These people in this room and the people that you lead who are members of and guests of First Baptist Church Dumas. These are your people. So, who are your people? Who are your people in your time? Let's workshop that for just a minute. Um, I was thinking about having call and response, but let's not do that. I just want you to think, maybe flip to the back page with a couple of notes, and write down a few things about your people. First Baptist Dumas. What is characteristic of the people at First Baptist Dumas? Some things that you notice, some things that you see every time you walk in the doors. And you're going to be, you're going to be tempted just to write good things. I know how you are, you Christians. Uh, and that's good. I'm one too, by the way. Um, but don't stick to just good things. Stick to some things that you think may need to change. Who are we? What's characteristic of our people? Just write down a few things. Okay, once you've got a few answers to that, who are our people, here's the next question I want you to answer, just on your own. What is our time? So there, it's not just your people throughout history, but God has called you to this moment right now. What's characteristic of this season at First Baptist Church Dumas? What are some things the church is facing, some problems, some opportunities? The church at large, what are some good things happening? What are some things that uh, may, maybe need to change in order to reach the next generation uh, or just the fact that we need to reach the next generation? Whatever those things are. What is your time? The first question is, who are your people? This one is, what is your time? And keep it broad. We're just talking about the church as a whole, not necessarily your area. Okay, and these should be very general and very broad. Here's why I had you write that down. What God has called you to as a leader in the church, is to reach and lead your people in your time. And if I could just be real honest, you know, traveling around Texas and talking about leadership and preaching and meeting, consulting with churches, it's very common for some very committed leaders in established churches to try to reach their people in some other time, right? Like to say, hey, if if the culture ever goes back to 1980, we will meet them there, right? And they just stay there in that time. Uh, or, or they think back through the yesteryears and when God did these amazing things and they make uh, an assumption that if we do the same things today that we did then, then we will have the same kind of success. And that's, not, that's actually called anachronism. It's superimposing something of the present onto the past. It's, it's a logical fallacy. It's not true. So you're not called to reach these people in that time. You're called to reach these people in this time. And now you at least know a few things that are characteristic about your people, and you know a few things that are characteristic about your time. Now, the question is, how do you do that? How do you lead? Uh, there are two different kinds of leadership, and the leadership that, that I'm going to uh, encourage you to embrace is relational leadership, relational influence. So this is what we're doing. Let's read this off the screen out loud together. Ready, set, go. Good leadership involves leveraging appropriate relational influence to affect positive change. Let's do it again because I think I was the only one reading out loud. Here we go. Let's do it again. One, two, three, go. Good leadership involves leveraging appropriate relational influence to affect positive change. Okay. Leaders lead by influence. And you can influence using a heavy hand or you can influence using a large heart. Heavy hand, large heart. One of those two things. 
Heavy hand happens when you lead your people. Uh, is anybody in here on the, the deacon body? You're a deacon. I met a couple of them. Uh, Scott, I'm going to pick on you. Scott was the first face I saw today when I walked up to, and he was the model deacon. He was weed-eating the lawn. Uh, so, And it looks amazing, by the way. And in case you didn't notice, he actually put diagonals in the lawn when he mowed it, which is brilliant and beautiful. So, Scott, I know it's not his normal thing here. You have people do that, but he's a model servant. He just got it done. So thank you, Scott. So now that I said all the good things about Scott, I'm going to pick on Scott. All right, so Scott's a deacon, and let's say that uh, there's a, a problem in the church and uh, with, you know, a couple of people are, are holding on to this problem. And he goes to one of these people, and he says, you know, he gets frustrated. I mean, you know Scott. And so uh, he says, you know what? You're going to do this because I'm a deacon, and I said so. Now, how well do you think that's going to work out for Scott? Probably not. Wait a minute. Is Scott a deacon? Yes. Does he have a position? Yes. Does he have a title? Yes. I don't know if you do business cards for deacons here or not. I don't recommend it. But he could possibly have a... I don't, he could slap down the business card on the table and be like, whose name is on that business card, right? And, and you could do all those things. And you can have the position, having been affirmed by the church. But if you try to leverage positional influence like that, Without a relationship, it does not go well. And by the way, this leadership seminar is not for your leadership context outside the local church. But if you really wanted to, you could, be, you could draw some straight lines between what I'm telling you right now in the context of the church and however it is that you lead outside the church, right? So, I mean, you're the principal, you have that teacher, you know, you, you slap down that card and say, or say, whose name is on this door, right? That's one way to lead, but you're probably going to lose that teacher at some point. Uh, so positional influence is a thing, but it's not the best thing. It's a heavy hand. The better kind of influence is relational influence. And relational influence happens when you have a large heart. Relational influence means it doesn't matter whether you have a title or not, or a position or not. You just walk shoulder to shoulder with some people, real people who have real problems, who, by the way, are just like you in that area, and you get to know them, and they come to trust you, and pretty soon, they're going to follow you, not because you have a title, but because they trust you and believe you, right? Now, that's relational influence. So there's the difference between uh, a position and a relationship, the difference between a heavy hand and a large heart. And, and uh, what Nehemiah is going to find is uh, really he's, he's going to have you continue to read Nehemiah. He has a commission from the king of Persia. And, and he has resources. He is set in charge of some things. But every time he's leading his people, he doesn't lead with a heavy hand. He leads with a large heart. He leads by winning the people to his side. So good leadership involves leveraging appropriate relational influence to affect positive change. By the way, uh, you can leverage relational influence in a negative way and affect negative change. And that happens in churches all the time. Uh, for one reason or another. And that's not necessarily what this seminar is about either, but you just need to understand just because you have relational influence doesn't mean you're leveraging it appropriately, right? So you need to leverage every relationship you have as a leader to affect positive change in the church, always. All right, so here's, uh, we have eight minutes until our next break, and here's your assignment. Here's what I want you to do. This is workshop reflections, three, two, one. Some of you, I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, so you may have to stretch yourself a little bit, okay? But here's what I want you to do. 
Who are the trusted people that God has placed around you? I'm talking about your, your influencers, the people who you trust, uh, and they fuel and they focus your leadership passions. Here's another way to ask that. Who would you go to if you needed some real answers about your life and, and you, had, you were working through some things and you needed somebody you could trust? Who would you go to in this church to ask those questions? Write down the name of, let's say, three people. Three people who are influencers. Everybody needs three names. And they don't have to be older than you. They can be younger than you. Whatever. All right, you've got three names. Now I want you to have two verbs. You know what verbs are. You're smart people in Dumas, Texas. How would these people, those people you just wrote down, how would they answer this question? What does your name here, what does Tony do here at FBC Dumas that makes a positive impact? What is it that you do? Write a verb down, an action, something that you do. It could be very specific or it could be something about your personality, your character. What is it? about you. These people would say this about you. You need two verbs, two things. Let me know if you need clarification for the question. I'll rephrase it. This isn't prideful. This isn't boasting. This is you imagining. What, you've probably already heard it from them. What they would say about you. So I'm not asking you to boast about yourself. What would they say about you? I feel like we should have gotten those. Remember when we used to have those cardboard things like where nobody can cheat when I was in school like, don't look at my paper yeah <laughs> what do you do those things have a name they're called offices all right I should have asked for you to bring them you could have brought your own office I like it I have this memory of me in second grade looking around my office and getting caught. <laughs> yeah. It was really funny. I really meant it, and the teacher did not believe me. But uh, so I was actually a really good student. Uh, I'm not just saying that. I was a good student. I actually looked around on my friend's paper to see if he got the right answer, because I knew what the right answer was. <laughs> I promise. And then I got spanked. But whatever. Yeah. All right. Okay, so you got three people. you got two verbs. Here's your next one. What's the one word? Now, this is some introspection, and I want you to challenge yourself on this. One word. What's the one thing you bring to the leadership table at First Baptist Dumas? One word. List one word that you think summarizes your passion or your purpose here. Think hard. It needs to be an important word for you. It's hard to bring it down to one word, isn't it? But based on these people you trust and what they would say about you, and your passions, you know what makes you tick, what makes you excited about coming here. What's one word? You'd say, this is what I bring to the table. We're doing great. We've got four minutes. That doesn't mean nobody else brings it to the table. Okay, you ready? Here's the big question. This is the hard one. Ready? The other ones weren't hard. This one's hard. Okay, last question before we can break. What are you doing here? Why does God have you here? Here's what I want you to do. In your leadership context at First Baptist Dumas, how specifically will you leverage relational equity to influence people toward biblical change? So here's what I want you to do. Fill in the blank. I am advancing Christ's mission 
at First Baptist Dumas by something, a verb, something, a noun. Look back at the words you wrote down. Look back at your passions and see, I am advancing Christ's mission at First Baptist Dumas by you are actively doing something. What is that you're doing? And that noun is probably your word that you wrote down in the last question. You didn't know what you signed up for when you were coming this morning, huh? You're like, he's going to talk. We're going to listen. It'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he's such an authoritarian. Yeah, he's going to check all your papers yet. No, he's, I will not let him do that. Will not let him do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to need you to sign your name, turn it in. Okay, so we're about to take a break. <clears throat> and again, this is just for you. You do not have to do any, anything with it at all, ever. But I, I wanted you to think about your specific leadership calling, and you're going to build on this as we go through the rest of the sessions today, okay? So if you are brave, then you might walk up to somebody in this room you trust and ask them what they think about what you just wrote down. If you don't want to do that, don't do that, right? But uh, it's just an opportunity, you know, to, to sharpen yourself inside the context of your fellow leaders at First Baptist Dumas. Uh, I can tell you that when I, uh, I'll tell you what I wrote down about myself. I did this a number of years ago through a different, pro it wasn't exactly like this, but I came up with two words, and my two words were inspiring hope. That's what, I, that's what I'm doing with my life, inspiring hope. And uh, I've held on to it, and it's, it's brought me back when I was in some very dark places. So I don't know what yours is, but I hope it helps you too. Okay, you're officially on break. When do we start again? 1015. All right, 1014, because I let you out at 959. I'm just kidding. 1015 on the dot. We'll start. So session two is about the problem. Uh, and let's talk about diagnosis. So if you have something wrong with you, anybody in here a medical doctor? No? I never know. That's good, and they can't correct me. What's that? You're a Google doctor, yeah. I was on a plane not too long ago, and this woman passed out when we got off. And uh, anyway, and my title says doctor, which I need to take off of American Airlines because they don't think doctor like I'm doctor. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not that kind of doctor, and if I were, I probably wouldn't take your insurance. But anyway, all that to say um, that if you, if you have a medical problem, something is wrong with your body, and you don't really know what it is, you go to the doctor. All right, how many of you would love for that doctor, before he runs any tests or talks to you about symptoms or anything like that, just to walk in, look at you, and prescribe you something, maybe a surgery, maybe some medicine, and say, thanks for coming in today, see you next time. Of course you wouldn't want him to do that, right? You, I mean, although some might, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but they, I mean, they need to ask you diagnostic questions, and they need to run some diagnostic tests and some blood work, and they want to find out what's actually wrong with you before they try to treat it. Um, so in that way, what we're going to do is we're going to think, you know, from last session was big picture First Baptist Dumas and your particular calling from God and, and the way you're wired. I want you to start thinking now about your specific ministry area. So what it could be music, maybe you're in the deacon body, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're in children's leader, youth leader, uh, pastoral staff team, whatever it is, your specific area of leadership 
that God has called you to in this season at First Baptist Dumas. Let's start thinking about that, and I want to diagnose some problems. Don't get hung up on the word problem yet, because I'm going to change it in just a minute. But this is what we're looking at. Uh, Einstein said if he had one hour to solve a problem, he would spend the first 55 minutes talking about the problem, and the next five minutes talking about solutions. 55 minutes talking about the problem. And then five minutes talking about solution. But we only have like 30 minutes. So here we go. This session, we want to identify a target, uh, a goal of engagement. Here's what I really want you to start thinking. What we're looking for is a specific opportunity that is disguised as a problem. Did you hear that? This is what we're looking for in your ministry area. This is what I want you to walk away with in this session. A specific opportunity that is disguised as a problem. All right, to help us get there, for the convictional leader, and we're talking about leading with conviction, uh, like Nehemiah, the problem, that opportunity, is the tear in the fabric of your passion that you are called by God to mend right now. Now, last session, you should have honed in your passion. You started with, I love First Baptist Dumas. That's awesome. I love my church family. Great. So glad. Let's narrow and focus that passion to something specific. That's what we did last session. So now think about that passion and your particular calling at this church, your area of ministry. And let's try to identify that one tear in the fabric of your passion that you're called by God to mend right now. Okay, and that's what we're looking at. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3 again. Here's, here's where we're headed. And again, this isn't expositional. Uh, this is just uh, exhibitional. That was not a word, but I just made it up. Verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you're to read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, what is he doing? What's he leading his people to do? He's leading them to repair the gates and repair the wall. That's what he's doing. So he's identified this one. There are so many things that Jerusalem needs. Remember, it's been 141 years that they've been since the temple's been destroyed. The temple's rebuilt, but the roads still need to be repaved. The houses need rebuilding. The markets and the economy needs to be developed. Trees need planting, and uh, and gardens need tilling. There's there are lots of problems, lots of opportunities described as problems in Jerusalem. There's so much that needs to be done, but Nehemiah was able to focus and say, "Okay, here's my passion." Here's where I'm gifted. Here's the moment God's given me and entrusted to me. This is my stewardship. I'm going to focus on the walls. I'm going to focus on the walls and the gates. Here's the thing. There are a lot of problems in Jerusalem, but not every problem was Nehemiah's opportunity. Does that make sense? There are a lot of problems in Jerusalem, but not every problem was Nehemiah's opportunity. But Nehemiah focused his passion, took him down to this one thing. He found his moment. He found his moment. This is going to be important in a minute. In the intersection of focused passion and pressing need. So he's focused his passion, and now he's identifying a pressing need. And right there where those things intersect, that's where Nehemiah found his moment in leadership. And I'm going to help you get there. Okay, so in your ministry area, there are, no doubt, lots of opportunities described as problems or or, uh, or uh, masked as problems right if you think through just think for a minute here what are the what are the various problems in your ministry area i mean and if you think of your passion as a fabric there could be there could be many many tears many rips in your passion 
But what we're looking for is the one, the one that you're called by God to men right now. Because here's the truth, even in your ministry area, not every problem is your opportunity. So let's hone it down. Frederick Douglass, y'all know who Frederick Douglass was? Frederick Douglass, very important person in American history. Uh, he is the leading black voice for uh, leading up to emancipation, leading up to the Civil War. He's the leading black voice in the United States of America. In fact, many historians would tell you that Frederick Douglass did more uh, to, to advance the cause of uh, African-American liberation in Texas than any other black man of his time. It's incredible. So Frederick Douglass, he is educated, if you don't know this, by the way, you, you should read Frederick Douglass. You're not going to agree with everything he writes, but he is incredible. He's an awesome author and writer. So Frederick Douglass was educated. He's a skilled writer. He's a compelling speaker. He's politically engaged. He was brave. Frederick Douglass was strong, but he never fought a single fight, and he never fired a weapon in the Civil War. Although he was one of the leading voices that inspired the engagement of the Civil War. Frederick Douglass didn't join the Union Army, although he was the leading black voice who convinced the president to allow blacks to join the Union Army. But he didn't even join the Union Army. Why is that important? Because Douglass knew that every great leader has to understand this. His passions and his gifts were his responsibility. His passions and his gifts were his responsibility, and he allowed that knowledge to guide how he could make his greatest impact on his moment in history. So he allowed all this, his knowledge of his gifts and his passions, to guide his moment, guide him to his moment where he could make the greatest impact with the stewardship entrusted to him in history. And so one of these books that, uh, you know, if you get bored, uh, with me, maybe you just pick one of these up. The second one here is Forged in Crisis by Nancy Cohen, and uh, it's a story of six random leaders, they're not random, but six leaders who made an impact in history. Most of them you'll know, a couple of them you won't, um, and she just describes, she tells their story, their leadership story that brought them to this moment, and then uh, she comments on it and pulls out leadership principles. This is not a Christian book. This is a business book. Believe it or not, she's a business professor at a very reputable institution. So she's commenting on Douglas's uh, focused passion and his discernment and his opportunity. And here's what she writes. This is an essential lesson, you see it on the screen, for anyone who yearns to lead. The temptation, especially in times of discouragement and failure, is to leap into the first opportunity that comes our way. To do something, anything, that might advance our mission. But this is not right action for leaders. Right action requires taking a long pause and considering how one can do the most good. This always entails putting one's gifts and experience to their best use. That's powerful, isn't it? I don't know if this is where they got that or not. My wife's parents are retired Salvation Army officers. So my wife grew up in the Salvation Army home. He was a pastor. And uh, they recently changed their, their motto, their slogan about 10 years ago to doing the most good, which is pretty cool. I don't know if they got this from this book or not, but it's interesting. So what Nancy Cohen is saying is she's reflecting on Frederick Douglass's leadership, and she's describing how he allowed his passions and all the opportunities cleverly disguised as problems of his day to focus his level of engagement. Okay, here's the problem, slavery. What am I supposed to do about it? Not what are we all supposed to do about it, but what has God called me to in my time? And that's where we're headed right now. So not every problem 
is your opportunity. For the convictional leader, the opportunity, cleverly disguised as a problem, is that tear in the fabric of your passion that you are called by God to mend right now. I grew up with four older brothers, and uh, so I'm the youngest of five, the youngest, the best looking, the favorite, the most educated uh, of five boys. And my dad was, God bless you, my dad was a pastor, and my mom had to stay at home to keep us all from killing each other every day. Um, and so we were broke, y'all. Like, bro, I mean, I know some of you grew up in poor homes. Like, we were bro- like broke as a joke. Like, we would go to the park, and the ducks would throw bread at us. Like, we were, it was so bad. It was embarrassing. But we were so broke. Um, and so every nice thing I had was a hand-me-down. Can anybody testify? Y'all know about hand-me-downs, right? And for some of you in this room, like your parents, your parents sewed the clothes. They made the clothes, and then they got handed me down. Uh, but for me, at least somebody nice in the church gave our family clothes, and then as I grew into them, they handed me down. So by the time I got a pair of jeans, and jeans were a commodity because jeans are expensive, y'all. So um, by the time I got a pair of jeans, it had tears and rips and weak spots all in it. Like they would be tears on both knees. Sometimes the bottom would be frayed. Sometimes, you know how you get that little rip right there, uh, or those little holes at the edges of the pockets. I mean, they had tears all over the time. So and my mom, again, was too busy trying to keep us from killing each other. So if I, uh, if I needed a pair of jeans and I wanted to go outside when it was cold and play, then uh, I had to learn just in junior high and early high school how to sew, how to mend these tears. I'm not a professional seamstress, and I never have been. In fact, it, was, it looked terrible, right? But I knew that if I wanted to keep these pants from ripping right here to ripping all the way around my kneecap, that I had to do something about it. So I would just, you know, use needle and thread and sew them up. My problem was... Like, I, I needed to sew, but I wanted to play. And so, so I would sew one, and then I would go out and play, and then it would rip again, or another one would, would rip. And, and I'd learned a valuable life lesson there that I think we probably all have learned at some point in our life. Uh, my dad used to tell me this when we were growing up, and it's still a motto by which I live today. You can do anything for a season. You can do anything for a season. Do you learn life lessons like that when you're a kid that stick with you? Well, here's another lesson I learned when I was a kid, particularly from doing a very poor job sewing up my own jeans so that I'd have something to play in, uh, is that I can only sew one hole at a time. I can, I can only mend one tear at a time. Uh, and for me, it was mend to tear, go play. Mend to tear, go play. Mend to tear, go play. And this is true of your leadership right here at First Baptist Dumas, right? If you, if you look at the fabric of your passion and how that overlays your ministry area, you're looking at your ministry area through the fabric of your passion, you're going to see all kinds of tears. There are all kinds of opportunities cleverly disguised as problems in your passion, in your ministry area. But you can only mend one at a time. You can't fix your entire ministry next week. You can't do it. Whether you're a deacon or youth ministry, children, Sunday school teacher, staff, you can't fix it all in six months. But you can pick one and you can work on it. And then once you get that one done, six months, eight, ten months, twelve months down the road, you can pick another one and mend it. So what we're looking at is focusing not just your passion, but now focusing your opportunity. Uh, I want you, by the end of this session, to be able to pick that one thing, that one thing that you're going to engage, that tear in the fabric of your passion that you're going to start engaging tomorrow, all right? So here's how I'm going to help you do that. This uh, Venn diagram that you see uh, is, oh, look at this. This fly wants to play. Oh, almost had him. 
So this morning in wonderful Dumas, Texas, last night when I got in, everything was great. I pulled in to the hotel, and uh, the clerk was really nice. Everything was fine. This morning, I woke up and walked outside, and I smelled death. <laughs> what the heck is happening in Dumas, Texas? I know. That's what they say. Smells like money. And sister, let me tell you, if that's what money smells like, you can't have it. I don't want it. Uh, uh, apparently the wind shifted or something. Anyway, so here we are. That had nothing to do with this lesson. The Venn diagram. Oh, I imagine that's why the flies are in. Uh, so the Venn diagram, uh, these three things. Here we go. The problem, uh, or problems as they are, uh, this is that specific need opportunity. So uh, wh- whatever it is that you're looking at uh, through the lens of the fabric of your passion in your ministry area, there are a number of problems, right? We, in just a minute, we're going to write down some problems in your ministry area. when you identify them, okay? But your problem intersects at some time in some way with your ability. There are some things that you're passionate about that you can't do anything about. Does that make sense? And sometimes you can't do anything about it because you just don't have the skill set. And there's nothing wrong with that because everything you have is something that God has entrusted to you. And if he's not given you something, there's no reason to be, uh, you know, to be frustrated over, over what he has given you or hasn't given you. So there, there are some times where you just don't have the skill set to meet a need. You don't have the ability. There's sometimes you don't have the time, and that's okay too. Um, or maybe it's not time. So there, there are problems, there are opportunities and then there's your ability. And somewhere, all of that intersects with your passion. Somewhere, your passion crosses over. You can see, you know, a hundred things in your ministry area that need to change. Fifty of them that you can do something about, but probably only one or two that you actually really care about. Like, I mean, like, I, I'm passionate about this. This needs to be solved. This needs to be fixed. So if you think about your moment right now, this is your moment. Uh, your moment hasn't passed, and it's not in the future. God, I think God's, I believe God's called you here right now because he has something specific that he wants to do in your life and through your life in the context of First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, right now. This is your moment. This is your time. So you think about your moment and the sweet spot of your passions and the opportunities right in front of you. So wherever these things intersect, your ability, the opportunities, your passion, wherever those things intersect, that's your sweet spot. That's your moment. That's what we're looking for. Okay, so convictional leaders are called to a moment. They belong to their time. This is really important. I would just say this with me out loud. Ready? Set, go. Convictional leaders are called to a moment. They belong to their time. Let me demonstrate this. I want you to respond out loud, okay? I'm going to say the name of a famous person, and I want you to respond out loud what that person is or was famous for, like their moment. That was their thing, okay? Okay. Everybody understand the rules? Full participation? All right, great. And these are obvious. You're going to know them, so there's no reason you should hesitate, all right? I will say the name of a leader. You just say, to the best of your knowledge, what it is that they're famous for. Ready? Out loud. Here we go. George Washington. First president, American Revolution, uh, independence. Those are all great answers, right answers. George Washington had done a lot of things before that moment. As a general, as a soldier, as a politician, Uh, He had done so many things, but we all remember him mostly for this one moment that God had brought him to in his life, and he seized that opportunity. Here's a second one. You ready? I'll say the name. You say what he's famous for. Abraham Lincoln. Ending slavery. Emancipation Proclamation. Fantastic. Very good. Here's another one. You ready? Winston Churchill. World War II. Yeah, man, you talk about a leader. That dude rose to the moment, right? Okay, one more. Oh, two more. Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. 
jazz, trumpet, right? Come on. He rose to that moment. All right, one more. Joe Burrow. He's an LSU quarterback, man. Undefeated season 2019. How come nobody here knows that? I'm just kidding. I just had to get LSU Tigers in. So I saw all of these Texas Tech shirts. I had to seize my moment here, having grown up in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Uh, what's really funny is if you follow Burroughs' uh, story, like he, oh, this is being recorded. He rose to a moment in 2019 that nobody expected him to rise to. Really interesting. He worked toward it. It's a really cool story. You should look it up at some point. Okay, so each of these leaders, they're called to a moment in time, and they belong to their time. And I want you to grab a hold of this right now because I know some of you are thinking, you know, I'm young. I've got a lot of years ahead of me, and so, uh, man, my moment's going to come. And some of you are thinking, man, I'm old, my moment's behind me, I may have already missed it. I know what you're thinking, but none of that is true, because you're here right now. God's called you to this moment, and you belong to this time. So you are called by God. None of us knows if we have tomorrow, and all of our yesterdays are in the past. But what we know is God's called us to this moment and this time among these people. So this is your moment. And my question is, where is the tear in the fabric that God's called you to lead? What's... What's the hole that you need to fill? Uh, if we use a, a, to change the metaphor, if you're sitting at a table and there's, there's a table full of leaders that all can solve problems, what's the problem you're going to solve? They, they're all in your ministry. You're sitting around a table full of children's ministry leaders who all serve in the same children's ministry context. Okay, you're coming to the table with a specific giftedness and a specific entrustment from Christ your King. And he's called you to this moment at this table at this time. So what are you bringing to the table? What's your thing? What's the tear in, in the fabric of your passion that you're called to mend in this time? So here's our exercise. Uh, again, you're thinking in your ministry area, the deacon body, the Sunday school leadership team, the committee, the personnel committee. I heard somebody here was on personnel committee. Um, you know, your staff team, your hospitality team. Who in here is on the hospitality team, by the way? You guys are amazing. That breakfast spread was ridiculous. It was amazing. Thank you for hosting Okay, so there are, here's what I'm telling you, whatever your ministry area, there are probably a ton of opportunities cleverly disguised as problems. I want you to write them down. Let's just list five. List five in your specific ministry area, uh, and these are broad. This doesn't necessarily mean it's something you have to do, but what are some opportunities, some problems facing your ministry area over the next 12 to 18 months? Okay, if this thing is successful over the next 12 to 18 months, here are five things we really need to talk about. We really need to try to fix. What are those opportunities? I'll give you a few minutes to write those down. Think hard about this. This is important. Oh, you guys are absolute troopers. You're doing great. Thank you for workshopping this with me. This is good. Okay, so you wrote down five opportunities, cleverly disguised as problems. Now I want you to pick one. Use the Venn diagram. Don't just do it randomly. Think through every one of those five that you see ahead of you. God has obviously put them on your heart. I don't know if he's put them on anybody else's heart in this room or your ministry area. So pick one. One of those things that, that meets the intersection point here, the sweet spot of your opportunity, your specific abilities, and what you're passionate about. Pick one of those things. Look back through all five. Pick one and say, this is the one I think God might be calling me to engage over the next six months. You don't have to know how yet. Just, just choose one.
Okay, you have a problem <coughs> that you believe you might engage over the next 6, 12 months. By the way, if you go home and rethink this thing, you can have a different problem you engage. That's fine. I just want you to actively do the exercise. Really think about it. We're going to pray about it in the next session. Really think about it. Here's what I love about Nehemiah's example. There were so many things that needed to be done, but God obviously clearly put the walls on his heart. Of all the things, the walls. Now, here's, here's the deal. We have no evidence that Nehemiah had any clue how to build or rebuild a wall. We have no evidence of that. He could have, it's possible, but that's not in the text. Which means, whether he did or did not, it's unimportant to God's call on his life in the moment. If he had experience building walls, he'd use it. If he didn't, God would give him everything he needed. So Nehemiah identified the problem that he was ready to engage. There were so many problems. He, he knows his passion. He narrowed it down to the one. And then, uh, I don't want to give away next session, but here's what I want you to do before I let you go. The last thing I want you to do. If you were to engage in this opportunity, if you were the one to engage in this opportunity. You're a leader. It's what leaders do. They lead. So if you're going to engage in this opportunity, what do you need? What do you need that you don't have? What do you need in order to solve this problem that you don't have? So I'm going to give you opportunity to fix that. We're going to pray together in the next session, by the way. But uh, let's see. 1055. Oh, that's good. So session three, you've got a nice long break. 1110. Take time. Think through. If you're going to engage in this, if you're going to mend that tear in the fabric of your passion, what are you going to need? Go ahead and write it down. When you're done, take a break. Be a nice long break. And uh, then we'll come back at the next scheduled time. All right, guys. Let's start session three here. Let's start with a little bit of recap. Uh, just really an invitation for you to participate here. Thank you for your patience. One thing I love to see is, uh, you know, on breaks, I'm so glad you had these breaks scheduled in here. Uh, but to see you guys interacting and talking together and enjoying good fellowship. Uh, I know that we should assume that there's good fellowship in Christ churches everywhere, but that's not always the case. So it's really good to see when you have it and you have something special at First Dumas. Um, okay, so call and response here. That fly just assaulted my head. There it goes. All right. Uh, so, call and response here, just active participation. Tell me one thing so far that stuck out at you. So, this is just kind of recap, just making sure we're still engaged. Uh, one thing that we talked about today that, for one reason or another, is something you want to remember. Okay, go ahead in the back. Yes, tell me. Oh, oh, pick one, one thing. That's good. So, yeah, we can get so overwhelmed with all the opportunities in front of us. Just pick one. That's good. Not every problem is your opportunity. And that's hard, too, especially when you're really passionate about the big picture. You know, you see all the problems. Yeah, not every problem is your opportunity. Which, by the way, is important. Um, this is expanded dialogue here. Uh, is important because in the body of Christ, I honestly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, has gifted every single person in your church to make a valuable contribution to the advancement of his kingdom in and through this congregation. Every single person. 
And that means if you go through your life identifying all the problems and fixing them all, uh, then you're robbing somebody else from the joy of contributing at the place of their tear in the fabric. So not every problem is your opportunity. Sometimes that problem is somebody else's opportunity. By the way, a good leader is going to help other people see that. You know, not to just charge ahead and fix it, but to bring someone alongside and say, hey, I see this in you. What do you think about working on this with me? How can I help you? That's good leadership there. All right, what else? What else has stuck out? That Nehemiah wasn't necessarily amazing. Is that what you said? Oh, oh, a mason. Yes, here I was thinking like the hats and the vests and the whole nine yards. And yeah, I would have. Yeah, isn't that cool? My sister back here, uh, I was just talking to her earlier. Tell me your choir teacher, your name one time? Janet. So Janet was a choir teacher for 20, 28 years and now is a second career as a real estate agent. While you were a school teacher, did you sell any houses? Oh, look at that. And so just, you know, just secularly, <laughs> this is like a whole nother season. But, you know, I mean, not secularly, everything is spiritual. But outside the realm of the church, even God called you to a new season, gave you everything you needed to do it. She sold a house this morning, by the way, before she came here. What have you done this morning? <laughs> I mean, not that she's bragging. Uh, <coughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. Nehemiah, we don't know if he was Mason or not. Uh, in fact, if you know, when you read through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, uh, I mean, he does some work, but really, he's not the one doing all the work. He's leading the other people to do the work, which is really cool. That's good. What else? What else stuck out? Stuck out. Just made up another word. Compassion and Compassion and leadership. Yes. Leadership is always about people. And you, if you can't love people, then you will not lead them in a biblical way. You have to love them. Compassion. Anybody else? A loss, a loss of passion. So, uh, man, this is it's very possible, probable even, uh, when you serve Christ Church for a long time, to get very comfortable, status quo, and just lose passion. So it's good every now and then, I would hope, to be reminded that God has gifted you and called you uh, according to your passion and that there's an opportunity right now that He wants you to engage. Thank you for that. Anyone else? All right. Ooh, somebody did a really good job mopping the floor. This is my squeaky shoes. All right. So session three is about brokenness. The goal here is to humble ourselves before God. Biblical brokenness acknowledges the insufficiency of human effort and embraces desperation for supernatural intervention. Now, I know that's a lot of big words in a really long statement. I'm going to say it again. Biblical brokenness acknowledges the insufficiency of human effort and embraces desperation for supernatural intervention. Okay, I asked you earlier, what are you doing here, right? Like, why are you at the leadership table? What has God called you to do? Let's back up just a little bit, maybe not to 30,000 feet, maybe just back up to 10,000. And let's ask this question. What are we doing here? I mean, us. God... God called you to this leadership moment, not as an isolated unit, but as a part of a larger community of faith. And inside that larger community of faith, a group of leaders like this. So what are we doing here? What's our goal? And I would imagine that, uh, you know, Pastor Matt uh, has 
at least communicates this. I don't know if you'll have a mission statement or a vision statement. Whether you do or do not, I guarantee you it sounds a whole lot like Matthew 28, 18 through 21. Um, that, that you're here to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded them. Uh, and you're supposed to do this with a guiding understanding that all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is with you right now to the end of the age. Um, so what are we doing here? You know, it's not just like we want to make the children's ministry uh, facilities better because people want better children's ministry facilities. You need to make the children's ministry facilities better because that helps you in your mission to make disciples of young families in the Dumas area. Uh, for one reason or another, you know, you're, you're not supposed to improve your deacon ministries, uh, ministry to widows because, you know, it's just kind of the right thing to do and we want people in our community to like us. No, you're supposed to do that as an expression of Christ's love for them in such a way that you might build bridges towards sharing the gospel, leading people to Jesus and disciple them in the faith. I mean, that's what, that's what we're doing here. What else are we doing? Are we trying to build a kingdom, uh, of, of ours, you know, so that the name of First Baptist Dumas, my, uh, I went and got coffee at, I'm going to say it wrong, the little coffee shop downtown. That one. And, uh, oh, man, the, I, was, I opened up the place. I parked up in front of it, and then she plugged in the, uh, the open side. And I walked in, and uh, she was so sweet. I forgot her name, um, but she, she was wonderful. And I told her what I was doing here, and, she, and I, said it, I asked her if she had a church home, and she said she goes to a Catholic church, and not, not even knowing you yet, I was able to talk about your mission. I said, what, what First Baptist Dumas is all about, I hadn't even been here yet, but what they're all about is that every person just like you comes to the knowledge and the understanding that Jesus Christ died for their sin, and that they'll trust in him, that they'd be safe. Whether you're Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, uh, it matters what you do with Jesus. And, uh, and all of that to say, all of Christ's churches and all of her local expressions have this one mission, and that's to evangelize and disciple the population where God's put you. So that's what we're doing together. Now, here's the thing. Can you save somebody? You know the answer to that question, right? No, you can't save somebody spiritually. Uh, can you? How many are Sunday school teachers or small group leaders in here? Small group leaders? Good. Okay. Your goal in small group leadership is, uh, is spiritual transformation. You want, you know, obviously you're evangelizing too as people come in, but you want to teach them more of the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can massage that onto their hearts and they can be formed. Their spirit can be formed to be more like Christ and walk more closely with Him. That's your goal. But here's the thing. Can you accomplish spiritual formation? Can you make people formed in the Spirit? Of course you can. I mean, you, you just can't do it. And the reason I'm saying all that is because what you're entering into as a leader in Christ's church is a spiritual enterprise and nehemiah understood this so here he is in nehemiah where we are in the text he is he is uh, understanding and owning who he is in the context of his people he refines his passion through the lens of opportunity and ability to focus on that one thing uh, through which he can affect meaningful biblical change and then it hits him right he identified as one thing just like you did and then it hits him i can't do this Wait a minute, God, you gave me all these passions and all this context and all this opportunity, but when I identify my one thing, I can't do this. This is bigger than me. And that's the right place to be if you're actually going to affect meaningful change in the context of the local church. I can't do this. It's too big. It's too hard. It's too much. And so Nehemiah comes to a point of crisis. And that's where we find him in verses 4 through 10, where he prays to God. 
So he refines his passion, he knows his opportunity, and he realizes, wait a minute, I can't do this. How does he respond? Look at Nehemiah 1 verse 4. We're going to read all the way through verse 10. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Okay, so pause, coach's time out here. I know football doesn't start till next Friday, but we're going to anticipate it. Coach's time out. Just that verse right there. Think about this. My friend Nathan Lort says this all the time. In verse 4, you see the difference between being bothered by something and being broken for it. So Nehemiah wasn't just bothered that the walls in Jerusalem were torn down and the gates were burned. He was broken. How do I know that? Well, because he sat down and wept and mourned for days. Whatever this hole is in the tear of the fabric of your passion that God has called you to mend in this season, I mean, is that something you're bothered about? Or is that something you're broken about? Here's verse 5. And I said, so he prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So Nehemiah is broken. He's praying day and night about this. You look in verse 4. Verse 4, Nehemiah is confronted with the gravity of his calling. He's overwhelmed by it. By the way, that's the right place to be. When you identify that thing that God's calling you to, you need to be broken and mournful over the opportunity. Uh, sit, weep, mourn, cry, pray for days even. That's entirely biblically appropriate. So he's broken over the opportunity. He realizes he can't accomplish the task on his own. He's desperate and he's begging for God to act on his behalf. Look in verse 5. Verse 5 through verse 7, Nehemiah is acknowledging his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. Which, by the way, Baptists, like, we don't like to talk about this. <laughs> uh, so forgive me for being unbaptistic for a minute while I just get biblical. Uh, and that is... There are some things, when you talk about your people, I'm not talking about the United States of America, I'm not even talking about the Great Republic of Texas or the Dumas people. I'm talking about your people, your church here, First Dumas. There are things in your past, immediate past and long time past, that you should, if we follow a biblical model of any kind, it's not necessarily that you bear eternal guilt for them, but you should repent from them. You should confess them before God. If there are things in the past of this people I'm not saying that you bear eternal guilt for them, but I am saying that it's entirely biblically appropriate for you to confess them before God. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. So he's confessing the sins of his people, but he doesn't stop there. In verses 5 through 7, he confesses his own sin. 
So it's not like, God, these people you called me to lead, these people have done horrible things. No, he said, I am my father's house. I've joined them. I'm one of them. So he's not just one of them when things are going well. He's one of them in all of their sinfulness. Verses 8 through 9. What's he doing? I love this part. Nehemiah is praying scripture back to God. Did you catch that? God, you said to your servant Moses, when this happens, this will happen, but if they return, then I will do this. And this will completely revolutionize your prayer life. I mean, if you, if you fill your heart and your mind with the words of God, then when you're praying before God, he'll bring those words back into your spirit and you can pray them back to God. Here's what I love about this. Nehemiah is asking God to do something that God already said he would do. Isn't that strong? So think about your ministry area, and here's what I would challenge you for just a minute. Uh, we're not going to spend too long on this, but think about your, your ministry area and the hole in the fabric that you think you know, God might be calling you to mend over the next you know, 6, 8, 12, 15, 16 months, 18 months. And let me ask this question. What does God's Word say about that particular opportunity? Just, and you may not know, and that's okay, but I want to give you a minute to just sit in this space and think. That thing, that one thing that you identified, what does God's word say? Anything at all, what does God's word say about that particular opportunity? Sit and think. You don't have to write chapter and verse, but write yourself a note or something so that you can come back to it later. I'll give you just maybe one minute. What does God's word say about your opportunity? Okay, my encouragement to you is if you, know, if you don't know, if you're wrestling with it, then uh, use the greatest scripture index of all time, and that is Google. Google search at some point, <laughs> go home today or open up your phone at a particularly slow time when this random guest speaker is boring you and type in your, your thing, whatever it is, and Bible, the word Bible. See what comes up, right? Uh, so that you know what God's word says about your particular opportunity. All right, but there's one more verse, and that's verse 10. I'm going to call your attention to it. So verse 10, he acknowledges God's complete ownership of this task. This is so important. Nehemiah is acknowledging that God is the one who owns this opportunity. Look at these words. These are your servants. These are your people. And everything good in the past that's been accomplished has been accomplished by who? your great power under your strong hand so here's the thing whatever it is that God has called you to if you can do it without him it's not worth doing what I mean your thing you name your thing and if it's something that you can do without desperation and brokenness before God it's not worth doing do something different I know, like, you're thinking, okay, well, Tony, that's, uh, I mean, I'm talking about this little bitty hole in the fabric of my passion. Uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. God's equipped me for it. I've done this kind of stuff before. I've identified the problem, and I'm leaning into it. Okay, but seriously, if you've, if you've accomplished anything like this in the past, who accomplished it? You? I mean, Nehemiah in verse 10 is saying, every good thing that you've done in the past, God, has been done by you, your strong hand. Your great power. And so even us, whatever it is, that thing that, that you've identified through the Holy Spirit's leadership in this moment, if you can accomplish it by yourself, don't do it. It's not worth it. 
All right, so here's our reflection point. Uh, just look back on the problem, look back on the opportunity that you identified, and take a moment and just ask yourself this question. Just a few seconds here. Can I do this without God? Can I do this without God? And if your answer is yes, then either it's not worth doing at all, or your view of yourself is too big, and your view of God is too small. Can I do this without God? Okay, so on the, uh, on the moment of uh, Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration, I love history, if you can't tell by now, his uh, 1865, his second inaugural uh, speech, uh, which is phenomenal. You should go back and read it. 18, you know the, eight, the year 1865 is pretty important because the Civil War has already begun, and here he's leading through it. So in 1865, uh, Nancy Cohen, well, not in 1865, but she's reflecting on this speech. Listen to what she says. This is this book, uh, Forged in Fire, down here, uh, Forged in Crisis. All right, so here's what she says. His, talking about Lincoln, his intelligence, his actions, and will were simply not enough, and he was forced to consider the possibility that larger forces were at work. Talking about Abraham Lincoln. Despite all the human effort the war had entailed, the president asserted God and providence had had their way. The war was ultimately, he concluded, the result of divine purpose, a, a purpose that he and the nation had to recognize. All courageous leaders confront the limitations of their own agency. All courageous leaders confront the limitations of their own agency. If you read a biography of Abraham Lincoln, uh, then you'll see that he was very self-conscious and some would say even depressed. Uh, he carried around this article that one of the newspapers had written about how great of a leader he was in the article you know how great of a leader he was and he kept it in his hat because every now and then he just thought okay I, I need to be reminded that somebody actually thinks I'm a good leader <laughs> and so uh, he literally did this so he, he did not consider himself a great leader uh, he just he just rose to the moment and when the moment came and he identified the one thing and he decided to lead through it he realized that that moment was bigger than him and he couldn't do it. In fact, everything that had brought him to this moment had happened because divine providence is what had led him there. The hand of God. These are your people. These are your servants. This is your strong arm. It's by your power that all these things have happened. And then so Nancy, while she's reflecting on this, she says, all courageous leaders, this is the last sentence, confront the limitations of their own agency. And here's the thing. I'm sure that you are a capable and gifted leader. And I'm sure there are things in your past, in your family, in your education, in your workspace outside of First Baptist Dumas that all come to bear on your leadership moment in the church. I want to remind you of this one more time. God's given you all these great gifts, and many of you in this room are professionals in some field or another outside the local church. And that's great. Praise the Lord. You should, you should work to make the city better. You should always do those things. But your greatest stewardship of every gift God has given you, your greatest stewardship will always be in the context of this local church. God's given you all those things so that you can bring them to bear in this moment in his local church because what we're dealing with is a spiritual enterprise. What we're dealing with is affecting eternity. All those other things are temporal. This is about eternity. So your greatest stewardship of all your gifts and experience will be right here in the context of the local church. And 
you're, you're not ready to lead through the moment. You're not ready to lead through the moment if you've not, what Nancy says, confronted the limitation of your own agency, of your own ability. So in Christ Church, we're, we're on this spiritual enterprise together. We're, we're conducting spiritual business that has eternal significance. I want you to really think about this. That means in your leadership capacity, whether you're with very small children or very, very old people, in your leadership moment, every single word you speak and every decision you make and every action you take and every step that you take, every moment, every relationship, every time, carries with it the full weight of eternity. Wrap your head around that. That's not always the case in your other leadership capacities outside this church. But if what we're doing here is a spiritual enterprise that affects eternity, then every single moment of your life that you steward your giftedness for Christ's cause in this church, every relationship, every word, every decision, every moment, every time, carries with it the full weight of eternity. You're on an eternal enterprise. And I don't know, like I can't look back on Nehemiah's leadership experience and say, oh yeah, he understood that. He knew that. I don't know if he knew that or not. But I know that he understood the gravity of his moment. I knew that he understood the, the immensity of his task. I honestly don't even know if Abraham Lincoln understood the gravity of this moment. Think how differently our world would be right now without God using Abraham Lincoln to lead the way he did. I mean, just think how different it would be. I mean, some of my best friends in my life right now, some of my best friends would literally not be considered people. If God hadn't used Abraham Lincoln to lead through his moment in his time. So I don't know if Abraham Lincoln really understood the gravity of the moment, but somebody like Nancy Cohen, who, by the way, I can't find any evidence. I don't know if she's an evangelical Christian or not. I don't know if she has any faith background or not. She's a business professor at a reputable business school. But when she's reflecting on Abraham Lincoln's leadership moment and on his speech at his second inaugural address, then she's forced to realize, she just can't help but notice that Lincoln has this faith in God that in the moment demanded brokenness and desperation before God. And I don't know, I mean like... Nehemiah gets to the end of verse 10, and, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Like, he knew what he, what he needed to do by the end of verse 10. He knew, verse 11, he knew what he needed to do. But I don't know if he was able to wrap his head around the gravity of that task. Like, if I make this one little decision, if I engage on this one little thing, uh, I don't think he had the capacity to know the long-term effect of that. Abraham Lincoln if I engage on this one thing, if I make this decision, by the way, if you read his, uh, one of his biographies, then you'll, you'll know he wrestled with whether or not to make these decisions. I don't think he had any capacity to understand the gravity of it. I mean, what would it look like in 2022 if I do or don't make this decision? He didn't know. He had no clue. But God called him to the moment, and he was faithful in his moment, in his time. And so I would say that if, if what we're on is a spiritual journey, if what we're doing is a spiritual enterprise with the full weight of eternity in every word in every moment, then you, even if it's like filling goldfish in the nursery, if you can't do this with brokenness and desperation for God, you're not ready. 
you're not ready for it. Because I have no clue the kinds of people who are going to eat those goldfish every Sunday and what they're going to grow up to become. <laughs> and how God's going to use them in their time for their moment. But here you are, part of their story right now. So if you can't do every menial task, every tear in the fabric of your passion, if you can't engage it with brokenness before God and desperation for Him to supernaturally act in time and space on your behalf for His success, then you're not ready to lead. And that's what we find in this text. So here's my question. Uh, let's, let's, do, oh, let's do interaction right now. This will be fun. And then we'll do, uh, we're going to write some things down in just a minute, and then we're going to pray together. But before that, let's do this. What are some other leaders, we're talking about Nehemiah, what are some other leaders in Scripture, any leader in Scripture at all, that you could call out loud, just call out his name or her name, and this person had to come to the point of brokenness and desperation for God, and that was the pivot point when God used them mightily. Name somebody in Scripture who that's true of. Ezekiel, ooh, yes, good. Who else? Esther, ooh, Esther was like, I might die. But that's cool, because Mordecai laid it on her. He was like, if you don't do this, somebody else is going to, right? That's good. All right, good. What else? Paul. Yeah, Paul. Man, he has this brokenness moment on the road to Damascus, and he talked about a chain, a change. I mean, the things that he once cherished, he considered dung. He considered filth before God so he could gain Christ um, and enjoy the fellowship of his suffering with the expectation of the resurrection. It's good. Paul, who else? Solomon, yeah, Solomon. Didn't you mention Solomon earlier? You're like, we're going to divide this book in half. Talk about a wise man for most of his life, and then he ended up with like 500 wives, which was not very smart. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> Good, what else? Who else in Scripture had a moment of brokenness before God? David, oh, against you and you alone have I sinned. Yeah, and then, man, that's like a, a switch flipped in David's life. That's good. What else? Jonah, <laughs> the reluctant prophet. Yeah, uh, I like to fish, but I'm not going with Jonah. Um, yeah, he, he had that moment. You know what's really funny in the book of Jonah? Because we're talking about leaders, right? Jonah's a leader. He's a prophet of God. He's supposed to go deliver the message. Uh, you know, the only thing in Jonah that did not obey God's will with joy was the prophet of God. The whole book ends with his misery. I mean, even the plant and the worm obeyed the will of God with joy. Yeah. Who else? Anybody else in Scripture had a moment of brokenness that was a pivot point for him? Job. Oh, yeah. Always. Whenever you preach through Job, Matt, I'm going to watch that series. I'm really interested. Was that next week? Okay, 10 years from now, he said. Uh, yeah. It'll take you 10 years to get through it. So, um, yeah, he has the worst advice from friends. Like, don't be that friend, right? And, um, but there comes a point where he just asks God. He's like, God, what am I doing? You know, and then God said, be prepared to answer me like a man. And I think that's when he realized, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't even, I'm not ready for this moment. And that's broken. That's good. Anybody else? What was it? Joseph, Joseph yes. Oh, man, I love Joseph. What a great young brother. Yeah, and his brothers, that's right, Reuben in particular. Good. Peter, oh, yeah, man, Peter, like, lived with his foot in his mouth all the time. And then, uh, you know, night of 
Christ's crucifixion, you're going to deny me three times? No, I'll never deny you. And then boom, 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 one, two, three, right after another. But then what happens in John 20 and John 21? You know, Christ comes and Peter, Peter's, Peter's like my spirit animal. Can I say that in the Baptist church? I don't know. Like I, I want to be Paul, but I'm definitely more like Peter. Uh, so, so Peter, you know, John 20 or 21, uh, he's going to this, uh, into this restoration moment. And he's, you know, he's heard about the resurrected Christ. I think he's even seen him. And then he's reminded, wait, I failed this guy. I mean, I lost it. And he's broken. So he says, I'm going fishing. And that's what I do whenever I can't deal with whatever's happening. I'm just go fishing. And uh, his friends wouldn't let him go alone. So they went with him. And then Jesus shows up and Jesus restores Peter with this threefold invitation. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. And right there, that's a pivot point. Peter's whole life changed from John 20 through the rest of the epistles. Right? The brokenness, the change is good. What else? Anybody else broken in Scripture that you can think of? That's quite a lot. Um, more than I thought of, honestly. I had like five names down, but whatever. Y'all are overachievers. Okay, so here's our exercise. Here's what I want to do. Uh, we're going to spend some time praying together because it would be ridiculous for us to talk about anything spiritual at all and not actually bathe it in prayer. And up to this point, it's been intensely practical, hopefully, for you to go from very broad to something very specific. And hopefully now you're recognizing that no matter what that task is, this moment and this time and this space for these people, no matter what it is, you can't do it by yourself. You need God. You need God to do this through you. So uh, I just want to help with that in the pattern of Nehemiah's obedience before God to help bring us to a place of brokenness and then, uh, and then just to pray for God to breathe on and empower that thing that he's identified in your life. So here are the things. Uh, I want you to write down five or ten very specific sins of your people that you can confess before God. Uh, now keep in mind, this isn't judgmental. Uh, and keep in mind who your people are. I mean, we're not talking about America. We're not talking about the Republic of Texas. We're talking about your people at First Baptist Church, Dumas, Texas, as much as you can, what are some things? And sometimes sins are just, you know, God was leading in this direction and you just said no. The church just said, nope, we're not doing it. And sometimes it's other specific things. There was division in the body. There was frustration. Uh, sometimes it's outright blatant sins whenever the church as a whole agreed with something or embodied some kind of uh, unbiblical stance. So think through, just think, and I'm going to give you time to do this. Think through five or ten, just since you've been here or that you know of, sinful things from your people that you could confess before God. While you're doing that, here's my last disclaimer. I do not think you bear the eternal curse of that sin as a group. This is not a liberation theology exercise, okay? This is just us following Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's pattern, acknowledging our sinfulness before God as a group of people. So think of five or ten and write them down. If you need help or clarification, ask me. I'm, we're going to workshop this thing. Okay, now move into personal, personal sins. And, you know, use discretion in how you write. Uh, just write something that calls back to mind exactly what it is the Lord's dealing with your heart. Where have you failed God, especially if you've not yet confessed that and repented for it? You don't have to be explicit on your paper. Just something that helps you bring to mind your personal sinfulness five ten things
And as you're finishing your, your personal list there, listen to me for just a minute. There is something divinely sanctioned about honest confession of sin before God. Like when you actually call sin back to God, what God calls it, something supernatural happens, even as a follower of Jesus, even if you're saved. And I think one of the things that, that we miss most in our relationship with Christ that we just get wrong is that we don't know how to confess and repent. As Christians, I'm talking about Christians. I think we just, we just don't talk about it. Uh, and we don't, we don't lead through exercises like this that make us stay in that really uncomfortable space before God. Uh, and here's your opportunity. I mean, it's a Nehemiah moment right here. Just be sincere before God. I'm going to ask you to, once you get it written, just close your eyes, bow your head. That's what we do as Baptists. And I just want to sit in this space. And nobody else has to say anything out loud. I'm not going to ask anybody to say anything out loud, but I'm going to pray over you. But before I do that, I want you to listen to the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit educate you, guide you into the truth of this moment in 1 John chapter 1, and just listen to the Holy Spirit. And then when I finish reading this, I'm going to pray over you, okay? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him, Christ, and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God, I have no clue the exact leadership moment that you've called each person in this room to step into. I don't know. But I do trust that through the work of your word and through the fellowship of the saints here and through uh, the, the, the active engagement of your Holy Spirit as we've walked through this, I trust that you've led us into that moment, at least into the acknowledgement of it. And Lord, right now, before we break for lunch and, and eat and fellowship again and then come back for that one final pivotal session, before any of that, Christ, would you find us here just broken before you? Lord, we wrote down sins of our people that we want to confess before you just after Nehemiah's pattern. Thank you, Christ, that for those of us who've who've repented from sin, place our faith in Jesus. There's no condemnation now for us because we're in Christ Jesus. When you look at us, you see the righteousness of Jesus. God, thank you for that. But still, here we are just to confess. It's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of fellowship. And God, if we walk in darkness, we might be saved, but we're not going to have fellowship, close fellowship with you like we're created to. So, God, I pray that you would help us as we recall these things to mind, the sins of our people 
where we have fallen short as your people at First Baptist Dumas, God, hear the cries of our hearts as we confess those to you right now. And God, as difficult as that moment is, it's not even the hard part. Because the hard part is, it's not just these people that have sinned against you. It's I and my Father's house. Lord, us, right here, in this moment, myself included, we have sinned against you. And God, you give us this incredible promise that if we'll just, as your people, if we'll just confess that before you, just admit that we sinned against you, call sin what you call it, then we'll enter back into that space of close fellowship with Christ our King. And Lord, I'm just assuming that there are probably some in this room who are not real good at confession. We've just not practiced it in our daily life. And Lord, you've shown us some things. We've written down some things that call to attention our own sin. Not just the sin of our people, but, but my sin. God, would you give us the courage before you just silently in our heart right now to call upon you a good father who stands ready to forgive and to restore us into right fellowship. Thank you for the salvation we have in Christ, that his blood has cleansed us even from these sins. But we've been walking apart from good fellowship with you, walking in darkness instead of the light. And God, those of us who are saying, I don't have any sin, God, we're liars. And the truth is not in us. For, for those of us who you've revealed specific things to, God, hear the cry of our hearts right now as we just admit to you, confess to you, that we've sinned against you. And we thank you, Father, that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from sin and restore us to a right relationship with you. Thank you, not just for saving us, but also for cleansing us now and restoring us to right fellowship. And Lord, now we enter into this time where, uh, God, hey, first of all, we'll just acknowledge that it's hard to sit quietly and to sit still in your presence when there are a million other things competing for our attention. And Lord, our model for this, uh, this seminar, Nehemiah mourned and wept and cried for days in your presence before he was even able to come to you in prayer. And here we are just for a few minutes embracing the quietness and the tension of this moment. And right here, where we are, each of us acknowledges in our hearts, in our minds, that that task, that moment, our moment in our time for these people, God, each of us acknowledges, we cannot do this without you. And we don't want to do it without you. So God, I pray that you would give clarity. I know there's some still who are thinking, okay, this is my leadership context, but I haven't really identified that. Well, I've identified one thing, but I don't know if it's the thing. So God, I pray that through the work of your spirit, you would, you would focus that passion, that calling, that opportunity, even as we talk and even maybe even tonight or tomorrow morning in prayer or in the actual leadership space. God, I just pray that you would give clarity to that one thing, that one thing that you're calling them to in this moment. And Lord, that in engaging this, uh, when we, especially when we flip to our last session and that pivot point in just a little while after lunch, God, even in engaging this, would you remind us? Would you be so kind to give us the reminder over and over and over again 
that regardless of the ownership that we have in this space, these are your people. These are your servants. And anything with eternal value is only going to be done by your strong arm and your power. So, God, as you hear our prayer, would you empower us to step into this moment for your glory and so that the church would be strengthened in these days. And hear us say now that if you do, Holy Spirit, if you would breathe on this, we will be very careful to give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Leadership is something uh, that you're doing because people are following you. So just look, if, if you're wondering, am I a leader? Just look behind you. If people are following you, you're leading. The question is not, are you leading? The question is, are you leading them anywhere good? Right? And so there are people all the time, if you have any kind of relational influence, uh, if people trust you, if people look up to you, uh, your words, your actions, your decisions, they are leading them. It's not like you don't get to ask, am I leading them? You are leading them. Only question is where? Where are you leading them? To what? And that's where the word convictional comes in. Uh, you have to think through and pray through where God would have you lead. You know, it's one thing just to serve, just to do things, but it's something else to understand and grab a hold of the entrustment of spiritual leadership. Uh, if this is a spiritual enterprise, you need to own it spiritually and pray for God's wisdom and discernment and direction. So uh, you won't, we don't want you just to lead people. We want you to lead them somewhere convictionally. That's what Nehemiah did. Okay, but this first word is what we get to last, and that's initiating. Uh, it's one thing to come to a leadership seminar <clears throat> and workshop things and talk and walk away with a handful of ideas but when you walk away from here, what really matters is what do you do with it? Like, what are you, what are you actually going to do? So if you came today and you walk away with ideas or even convictions or a renewed passion or a focused passion, but you don't walk away with a clear next step, I failed. That, because it doesn't do you any good at all. So what we want to do in this last session is kill that fly <laughs> and then uh, give you a very clear next step and that's what this last session is knowing all the things you know having focused your passion owned your opportunity bathed it in prayer and trusting God to lead now we need to determine what is your next step willingness is uh, what we're going to ask for if you're you know if you're to read through chapter two of Nehemiah you'd see where he takes a risk after after deciding your next step when you put your foot on that next step you take a risk. There's always a risk, a chance you could fail. And that happens for Nehemiah in chapter 2 when he actually steps before the king. Uh, but right before that, he determines in his mind clearly what his next step is, and he is willing to do so. And so here's uh, where this on your screen comes into play. Willingness is that state of mind that puts the leadership moment into your hands. It moves an idea from possibility to opportunity. Until you have a next step and are willing to take it, it's just a possibility. It's not an opportunity, right? So I want to help you move from possibility to opportunity in this last session. We'll try to do it quickly. Look at verse 11, Nehemiah 1, verse 11. At the end of his prayer, Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and, here's his request, 
give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Then he adds, now I was a cupbearer to the king. And you get, if you, you know, if you know Nehemiah's story, then you get the impression here, if you really think about it, at the end of his prayer, before he got up from his knees, he knew what he needed to do. He already knew because he said, give your servant favor today in the presence of this man. Show him mercy in this man. And then he's like, oh, for your benefit, readers, you just need to know I'm a cupbearer to the king. So he knew what his opportunity was. He knew exactly what God had called him to do. And the only difference between possibility and opportunity was his willingness to take that next step. I'm assuming that, uh, you know, a church like First Baptist Dumas, there are lots of, not just lots of opportunities cleverly disguised as problems, but there are years, maybe decades worth of work that needs to be done in order to reach the next generation and to uh, massage the faith that is in Christ into their hearts and their minds. I, I mean, it's a long game, right? Everything you do in the faith is a long game, and that's cool. But, but you're not going to end up anywhere good unless you know what your clear, actionable next step is. Uh, this is where I love the story of Abram that comes in. Before he's Abraham, right? So Abram comes to this defining moment where God calls him, and he's like, hey, Abram, what's up? And Abram's like, here I am, God, what you got for me? And God says, I need you to leave Ur, which is where all of your people are and everything you're familiar with, live there your whole life. I just need you to leave Ur and go to a land where I'm going to show you. So Abram didn't even know what it looked like. He didn't even know where he was going. God didn't call him to the, the final product, to the end destination. He just called him to the next step. I mean, I, like, there's, no, there's no indication in that text of Abram's call to follow God in faith. There's no indication that he even knew whether to go left or right. He didn't know. He just like, he was in prayer with God. God called him to something. Before he stood up, he had to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take the next step. I'm going to lift my foot, and God, you tell me where to put it, right? And he had, boom, one step, and then another step, and another step. And then God fleshed out the whole plan while he was going. So I want to acknowledge that to you. You may not have a clear end product in mind, and that's cool, because it really doesn't belong to you anyway. The end product belongs to God. But what God does call you to, when you identify the tear in the fabric that he's called you to mend right now, according to your passions, your opportunities, and your abilities, then you have to determine a clear next step, and you have to be willing to take it. And that's where we're landing here in uh, the final session. Visionary leaders, this quote from Leonard Sweet, this is this littler, littler book, I've made up three words today, littler book called uh, Summoned to Lead, which is an excellent book on leadership, old one, but excellent one. And here's what he says, visionary leaders see possibilities. And everybody wants to be a visionary leader. Visionary leaders see possibilities. Called forth leaders actually turn those possibilities into reality. So uh, you can be a visionary leader all you want, but unless God summons you to the moment and you have the willingness to take the next step, nothing's ever going to happen. So the goal of this session is to help you identify your clear next step. By the way, um, Leonard Sweet, and really he's mentioned in uh, the Cohen book as well, is a man named Shackelford. I think it's Ernest Shackelford. Uh, you may have heard his story, but just the unlikeliest of leaders who was trying to lead through um, exploration of um, the Antarctic in the early 1900s. And then, I mean, it's a really long story, but to make it short, basically he knew he was not, not going to do that, and it came into a quest for survival. He was the captain of the ship, the lead explorer, and uh, instead of you know, leading through what he intended, that final product, that whole final product changed when he realized they're all about to die. 
And so he turned into this incredible relational leader, one step after another, never knowing what the final product would be until he finally got his whole crew home. Uh, which is just, I mean, it's one of those leadership stories that nobody really knows unless you read a book like um, Summoned to Lead or Forged in Crisis. And so Shackelford was summoned to this moment, his moment. I'd say you are summoned to yours. And right here what we're talking about is the difference between being capable, which you all are, and being called. You're all capable. Are you called? Are you willing to take the next step? So this 18-wheeler driver is, uh, any 18-wheeler Drivers in here, you truck drivers? Great, okay. So this 18-wheeler driver, you know the importance of this moment, is riding down the highway, and he sees an overpass come in. And uh, he forgot the sign. He didn't see the, the height sign. And so he's driving up on this overpass, and he's thinking, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. And so he slows down, and he slows down. He's looking, yeah, I got clearance. I can make it. You never do this, right? He's like, yeah, I think I can make it. And so he, he eases up under the overpass, and sure enough, he wedges his truck in the overpass and he's stuck puts it in reverse you know he's trying to ease it out but he can't do it and he's stuck under the overpass he's like great so he steps outside of his truck puts out the cones and the uh and the other safety gear and he calls the policeman local policeman comes and uh this is not a joke by the way it's starting to sound like one there's no priest or rabbi or or preacher but uh, the police comes and uh, the policeman comes and he helps them evaluate. They're standing outside. They're looking at the bridge and they're thinking, okay, the police says, I'll tell you what, why don't we bring a, uh, a guy with a tractor, you know, because that's how we do it in West Texas. Bring a guy with a tractor. Maybe he can pull you out. And then the policeman's like, hold on, if we do that, it's going to weaken the structure of the bridge. And if we pull it out, then, you know, maybe this thing could crack and then somebody going over it would fall. That's not good. So the policeman and the truck driver decide to call an engineer. This is shaping up like a joke, but I promise it's not. And so they call an engineer, and the engineer comes. He's 45 minutes, an hour away, and uh, there's this little boy on the side watching the whole thing, you know, just sitting in the grass. You know how kids do, watching it happen. And uh, so, so the engineer comes, and he takes some measurements and makes some calculations. And, uh, you know, they, they have these giving points in the bridges, these expansion joints. And so the engineer says, okay, look, here's the deal. Uh, we can probably jack up the middle of the bridge a little bit, but there's a serious risk in it. If we jack it up at all, uh, maybe even a quarter of an inch too high, the whole bridge is going to come crumbling down. And so they're debating whether or not to do this. Well, while the policeman and the engineer and the truck driver, not a joke, are, uh, are all discussing the opportunity, the problem, and how to solve it, uh, the little boy, unnoticed, goes up to the truck, and he pulls out his pocket knife, and he opens up the, uh, the tires. What's that little thing on the end of the tires? And one by one, he lets all the air out of all 18 of the tires. He goes around, puts his pocket knife in his pocket, walks back, and he taps the truck driver on the shoulder and says, all right, you're good. You can just pull through. And sure enough, he just pulls straight through. And here you have these three professionals who are like, I mean, how are we going to do this? And this little boy just saw the opportunity, and he's the only one who had the guts to take action. He didn't ask for permission, which, by the way, don't do that. Go talk to your pastor. But he just saw the opportunity, and he capitalized on it. He used his brain. He knew, he knew his opportunity. He was called to the moment, and he just took action. And that's how things are solved. Let me tell you this. There is not an idea in the world that will ever solve a single problem. There's not an idea in the world that will ever solve a single one of your problems. What solves problems, what rises to opportunity is not ideas, it's action. Action is where you actually step into the space to which God has called you. So lots of people have a head full of vision. 
These are those armchair quarterbacks, backseat drivers. God bless my 16-year-old son. He's trying to learn how to drive. He doesn't have a bone in his body that actually desires to drive. You wouldn't either if you lived in Dallas. But we cannot convince this boy to take his test and drive. And one of the reasons is because uh, early on, about two months ago, I mean, he's had his permit for a year. About two months ago, we get in the car, and Vanessa, my wife, is up in the front seat, and I'm in the back seat, and we're both trying to tell him how to drive, and he doesn't know who to listen to, and he's all freaked out and makes a wrong turn, almost kills us all. You've all been there if you have teenage children. And, uh, and he just didn't know how to listen to He was listening to too many voices, didn't know what's going on. So here's the thing. I had a head full of vision for how my son should drive. And Vanessa had a head full of vision of how my son should drive, and they weren't even on the same page. Here's the thing. Lots of people have a head full of vision. But without a handful of action, then that head full of vision amounts to nothing more than a heart full of regret. And you and I can sit around these tables all day long today, and we come up with vision, come up with thoughts, possibilities. But if we don't take an active next step, then it's just going to leave you with a heart full of regret, something you could have done, maybe something you should have done. But you didn't take that and turn it into opportunity because you weren't willing to take the risk. So we're calling you to risk. It's a new season of life. It's a new moment. These are your people. This is the time that God's called you to. Let's decide. Let's think through what is your actionable next step. If you're actually going to do something about this moment, then what exactly is it that you need to do? So there's only one question left to ask, and that is, what's our next step? All right. You have focused your broad passion into uh, a a particular calling from God. You identified that tear in the fabric that you believe God is calling you to mend at this moment for these people uh, in this space. You've acknowledged your brokenness before God. You've acknowledged your desperation for Him to be the one who accomplishes this by His power and for His great glory. Now, here's the pivot point. This is where Nehemiah's whole story pivots right here. You see the possibility. You need a clear next step. So let's do a one, two, three exercise here, and, uh, and this will be pretty much the last thing we do. And after this, uh, we can take open Q&A for a few minutes, and then I'll hand it back over to Pastor Matt. All right, so one, two, three. List one clear, actionable next step for you to take tomorrow. Tomorrow is Sunday, by the way, in case you didn't remember. So you've got to put your game face on for Sunday, right? You're in the game. So whatever it is, what is that thing? You already wrote it down that you think God might call you to. What is a clear, actionable next step for you to do tomorrow? You can't wait until next week or until a month from now. You have to start tomorrow. So what is it? What's that thing, a clear, actionable next step you can do tomorrow to start to mend that hole in the fabric? By the way, that that doesn't mean you're going to fix it tomorrow means you're going to step out in faith. Take a risk. All right, once you've got that one thing that you can do tomorrow, by the way, go home, marinate this in prayer. It might change. That's fine. I'm just trying to get you thinking. List two clear, actionable next steps for you to take within the next month. What are you going to do tomorrow that's going to set you on that path? And then as best as you can discern right now, look out a month in the future. Play that movie forward and think, what are two more steps? that I'm probably going to need to take in the next month. And once you've got that, one, two, three, let's let's list three steps that you need to take in the next six months or eight months or 12 months. 
Okay, so now you should have at least the beginnings of a roadmap, something. And again, keep in mind, you take one step, God might change it. He might change the next step before you finish your first. That's cool. Listen to God, not Tony Wolf. all right? But at least you have some kind of actionable next step. So where you can take this, uh, this possibility that God's put on your heart right now and turn it into an actual opportunity. But it takes risk. I love this sentence. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. All that, I mean, you're like, he did, how many times had he done that in his 20 years of service to the king? He'd done that all the time. Why is that consequential? Why record that here? Because he had already decided that this time, in verse 11 of chapter 1, that this time, when he took the wine before the king, he was going to take his next step. He was going to take a risk, and he was going to ask him for his favor. And he did. So the thing, the next step that you take tomorrow could be entirely repetitious. It could be the same thing you've done every single Sunday for the last 40 years, but this time you're doing it with intentionality. This time you're doing it with purpose, and that's totally okay. So my encouragement to you is you can take all of these things and say, Tony, that was completely irrelevant to my life. I just wasted like seven hours of my life this morning, and uh, I love the whole Nehemiah thing, but everything you said was worthless. Great. Burn the paper. <laughs> but let, let the Holy Spirit of God work on you in leadership. And uh, I'm just telling you, no matter how young you are or how old you are, if you don't walk away from this moment right now with a clear next step and the willingness to take the risk, then nothing is going to happen. You will not rise to your moment and you'll miss it. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.